Um, and so if you would, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to Luke chapter 14 this morning. We're going to look at the parable of Jesus. And if you would, as you're turning there, would you stand with me this morning as we read Scripture? Luke chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 12 this morning. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said... I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And when the master of the house became angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room." And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. and You may be seated. So today we're going to be talking about invitation. This is a parable that's all about invitation. The invitation that has been extended to us, but also the invitation that we are called to extend to the world. And, and as we get going, let me just give a little bit of context for this parable. Uh, this is actually the last, we're picking up the last of a series of things that Jesus did in the home of a ruler of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. This all begins uh, at the start of chapter 14 uh, with Jesus boldly healing a man on the Sabbath. And he does this as he is like walking into this Pharisee's house to eat a meal. He heals a man, and then Jesus notices the entitlement mentality of these men as they are coming into the house and as they're taking places of honor around the table. He famously says in verse 11 to them, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He then tells the man who is the host, hey, listen, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends, meaning all these guys. But when you throw a party, what did he say? He said, invite those who can't repay you. Invite the poor and the blind and the lame. And he says, if you do that, you will be blessed. So the moral of this whole story is, if you are a Pharisee, don't invite Jesus to your party. Right? Because Jesus is being incredibly confrontational with these guys, isn't he? He isn't shying away from calling out what he sees. 
And so he wraps up this confrontational exchange with the parable that we read today, this parable of the great banquet, and that's where we're going to camp out today in our remaining time. A few things I want us to notice in this parable. First of all, uh, the master in the parable extends two invitations. The first invitation that goes out is an invitation that says, I'm going to be throwing a banquet, like it's coming, get ready. This is sort of a save the date type invitation that goes out. The second invitation is, the time has come, the banquet is ready. So people knew the banquet was coming well in advance, and yet, What we learned is that even though people knew the banquet was coming, even though they had plenty of time to plan and prepare, they give a bunch of excuses for not attending. And this is exactly what Jesus experienced, wasn't it? This is exactly what Jesus experienced for hundreds of years before the time of Christ. God spoke through the prophets saying that a Messiah was coming, a Savior was coming was coming. God gave specific details about the Messiah. If you've ever studied Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, you know not only were there an abundance of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, you also know that some of those prophecies were incredibly detailed. So so there was an initial invitation that had gone out. A Savior is coming, a Messiah is coming, so that when He came, people would recognize Him. Right? So that when he showed up, people would go, oh yeah, that's him. Because he fulfills all of the prophecy that we have literally been hearing for hundreds of years. This message was delivered to the Jews, but what happened? When Jesus arrived, they didn't embrace him as Lord, did they? No, they, they called him a drunk. They called him a liar. They called him a blasphemer. They called him a friend of sinners. And they killed him. So God the Father sent out his initial invitation through the prophets. The banquet is being prepared. Jesus arrives. The banquet is ready. He is here. In Jesus' own words, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And yet the people who were invited don't attend. As John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, the parable could easily end there and just serve as like a symbolic narrative describing the rejection that Jesus faced. But it doesn't end there. It goes on. Instead, in the story, what happens next? The master, upon learning that all of these excuses have been made, upon learning that the people he had invited to the banquet are not going to come, the master becomes enraged. The master becomes enraged and he sends out his servants. And the word there is quickly. He says, go quickly to bring in the poor and the blind and the lame. And and they come back and they say, everything that you've commanded has been done and yet there is still room. And so he sends them out again. And this time he instructs them to compel, compel people to come in. He tells them to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people. The definition of compel is to forcefully urge or irresistibly urge people. So, so, so this wasn't like go out and politely invite people to come. Don't, don't go out and just kind of 
kind of casually ask people to come. He says, no, go out and forcefully or irresistibly urge people to come to the banquet. It wasn't go out and just be a nice person and hope that because you're a nice person, maybe they'll come to this thing. But no, 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 go out and compel them to come in. So let's talk big picture for a minute. Here's the tendency of people who teach this parable. What we want to say is, what we want to say is, thank God that even though the original invitees rejected the Messiah, thank God that even though the Jews of Jesus' day didn't recognize him and rejected him and crucified him, praise God that we have now been invited in to this banquet. Like, praise the Lord that even though that happened, we have also received this invitation. We see ourselves as the people in the highways and the hedges who have been compelled to show up. And for most of us, or many of us, there has certainly been some point in your life where a servant of the master has come to you. And if you're like me, there have been multiple servants in my life who have come to me with the message of the gospel, who have come to me with the invitation of Christ. This could have been a pastor in your life. It could have been a, a youth minister in your life. This could have been a parent or a relative or a friend. I don't know. But more than likely, at some point in your life, some servant of the master has come to you and said, come in to the banquet. It's ready. And listen, all of those things are true. An invitation to this banquet has been extended to you, but, but that isn't the end of our understanding of this passage. Because this is no normal banquet. This is no normal dinner party. You've never thrown a dinner party like this. This is a transformational banquet. This is a banquet that changes you. This isn't a banquet that you just attend and then go home. The New Testament teaches two paradoxical truths. One is that by accepting the invitation of Christ, you become like a son or daughter of the Master. By accepting the invitation of Christ, you're not just an attendee, you actually become a child of the king. So that's one of the things we learn. The second thing that the New Testament teaches us is that by, by accepting the invitation of Christ, we not only become a son or daughter of the king, by accepting the invitation of Christ, we also become a servant. Your translation might say something like bondservant or even the word slave to the master. And so both things are true. We become a child and we become a servant. And that both of those things are incredible. That by accepting his invitation, we are transformed. You might say we are born again. We go from death to life. We go from simply living in this world to suddenly living in the kingdom of God. So both things are true. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are now called a beloved child of the master and you have been sent out as a servant of the king to compel people to come in because there is still room 
But here's the problem. Most of us are not compelling people to come in with any intentionality. And that's not to say that you've never done that. But on the whole, most of us are not fishing for men. Most of us are not actively extending an invitation. Just about every poll or statistic that you can find on the state of evangelism in America today will tell you that this is true. Even if we have been saved by Christ, even if we know that this is what he has sent us to do, even if we know how to do it, even if we feel it's our responsibility to do it, even if we're comfortable articulating the gospel, most of us don't. In fact, research shows that if you are in the middle class, you are actually the least likely to share your faith with other people. It's as if we are eager to accept the invitation to become a child of the king, but when it comes to being a servant of the king, suddenly the excuses come out. Suddenly we find ourselves in the position of being the one who's saying, may I please be excused? Now we could easily take like a finger wagging approach and heap on guilt and shame and all of that and say, oh, you guys must not really love Jesus all of that much. But here's the deal, we're all guilty when it comes to this kind of thing. I'm no different than you in this. What I want to do today instead is I want to look to the teaching of Jesus and remind us of a critical truth that I think has the potential to truly free us to share the gospel with much greater frequency and intentionality. I want to call us this morning to maybe rethink a little bit what that actually means, what that actually looks like in today's world. Billy Graham once said that there are essentially three master categories of invitation that Jesus extended to the world. Three master categories of invitation that Jesus extended to the world. Now, there are certainly way more things that Jesus like calls people to, but I think most, if not all of them, fall into these three boxes. The first is found in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now hopefully all of us realize when Jesus says come to me those of you who are labor those of you who labor and are heavy laden come to me and find rest that when Jesus says that he's not simply saying come to me those of you who have worked a couple of extra shifts and are physically tired and I will give you sleep. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about soul rest. He's saying if you want freedom from sin, if you want hope, if you want life outside of this broken world, if you want to stop pursuing the things that ultimately don't satisfy you, Jesus says you will only find that in me. So there's nothing different here between Jesus saying this and saying things like I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? If you want to come to the Father... Not only do you have to go through me, but if you want the way and the truth and the life, this abundant life that I promise to you, then this is the way that that happens. This is how you find this. Follow me and learn the unforced rhythms of God's grace. 
Learn what it actually means to find freedom. Follow me and find release from like worry and fear and anxiety. Follow me and discover abundant life. Follow me and find rest for your soul. So this is an invitation to salvation. Find release from your sin and your guilt and your shame and find it in Christ. And in doing so, find rest. The second invitation is Mark 1.17. Jesus speaking to Peter and Andrew and calling them to be his disciples says, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So follow me and find hope and rest. And let me teach you how to call others to follow me as well. Let me teach you how to call others to the same thing. How to call other people to also find rest in me. So this is the call of Christ for us to become disciples of Jesus or students of Jesus who make more students of Jesus. It's not only come follow me and find rest and salvation, it's also follow me and become fishers of men. Follow me as a disciple who is making disciples. The final invitation that Jesus extends we find in John 15, 4, and it's this. This is really what I want to camp out on here in the end. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that to be incredibly freeing. I find that truth to be incredibly freeing. I hope you realize the implications Jesus says, if you bear fruit, if you bear fruit, you cannot say it's because you've made a wise choice. If you bear fruit, you can't say it's just because you did the right thing or because you had the right method or because you articulated the gospel perfectly or because you were clever enough or smart enough or innovative enough or creative enough. He says, no, 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 if you bear fruit, it's going to be because of your connection to me. The branch cannot bear fruit on its own. So if that's going to happen for you, it's going to be because you are abiding in the vine. Without Christ, we will not be successful. Without Him going before us, filling us with His Holy Spirit, empowering us for the mission that He sent us on. In the church, we love new models and methods and ideas, and some of those are great things that the Lord has used and does use and will use. But listen, God is always working in spite of us, isn't he? God is always working in spite of us and our creative ideas and methods and new ways of doing things and old ways of doing things. Like if we look at uh, the book of Acts, if we look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost... The Holy Spirit has fallen. Peter preaches this incredible sermon, and thousands of people follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. If we look at that and say the reason why that happened is because Peter was an incredible preacher who preached an incredible gospel message, we would be wrong. It's not that, simply, that Peter was simply a great preacher or that he had a great sermon that day. That wasn't the whole story, was it? No, no, no. God was involved. Right? 
Peter can't bear fruit on his own. His abiding in the vine is producing good fruit. His abiding in Christ is producing good fruit. The, the, the same thing is true in today's world. Back when I was getting into ministry, uh, something that was very popular at the time was a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Y'all may remember this book. Rick Warren, uh, pastor of Saddleback Church out in California, had written this book. His church had seen explosive growth. I mean, it had grown to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's still an enormous church. So, as we are apt to do, uh, churches around the country started purpose-driven life groups. They started taking people through this book. And a bunch of other churches saw tremendous growth as well. Many churches, however, saw nothing change. And they thought, well, we're doing the purpose-driven life. And I remember hearing people say at the time, look, if you do the purpose-driven life and your church doesn't grow, you're just not doing it right. But that's putting our hope in the model or the method. That's in thinking if we're going to see heart change or life change, if we're going to see people come to know Christ, that as long as we have the right tool, that that will happen. But guys, that's simply unbiblical. We can have the best tool in the world. And it's still just a human tool. We need the Holy Spirit of God to move. We need God's Spirit to draw people to Him. We need Him to empower us for the mission and ministry that He sent us to do. We, we need Jesus, right? So, so Christian maturity has nothing to do with like outgrowing Jesus. Like You can't outgrow Jesus. You're not going to come to a point in your life where you no longer need Him. If anything, you'll come to realize how you need him more than you've ever needed him. Like the more obedient you are to him, the more you truly give over who you are to him, the more you realize, I really can do nothing on my own. I need the Holy Spirit. I need Jesus. If anything good is going to come from my life, it's going to be because of him, not because of me. He is the source so, of course, we want to proclaim the gospel correctly and clearly and boldly. And yes, we want to do everything with excellence. And we want to pursue methods that we think will be effective and relevant to the culture that we're encountering today. Of course, we want to do all of those things. But many of us are way too scared that we're going to do something wrong or we're going to say the wrong thing or we're going to mess things up. Some of us are afraid of sharing our faith because we don't want to affect relationships with other people or we don't want to be thought of as like a zealot so in these last couple of minutes i just want to suggest a few things to us based on scripture that i think we should consider when it comes to sharing what jesus has done for us which that's what this really is all about it's not just about regurgitating some kind of prescripted gospel presentation it's about telling other people about what has happened in our lives, right? If you read Peter's sermon at Pentecost, what is he talking about here, right? He's not describing something he's just read about. He's not describing something he's just heard about. He's telling you about something that has happened in his life as well. And the same thing is true for us. First of all, we have to invest in relationships with lost people. If we spend all of our time with people who supposedly already know Jesus then when are we ever going to have an opportunity to share our faith with someone who doesn't know him? 
And we all know lost people. We may not be friends with them, but we know lost people. You have family members. You have people that you went to school with. You have co-workers or former co-workers or parents in your kid's class or neighbors who don't know Jesus. And it's possible, it's possible that you've actually separated yourself from those folks because they don't know Jesus. Maybe you've bought into this idea that, no, 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 I need to sequester myself away from those kinds of folks. Listen, these are the people that we've been sent to. Not, not just pastors or professional Christians, right? We've all been sent with the gospel. We've all been empowered with God's Holy Spirit if, we're, if you're a believer. It would be counter to the way of Jesus to separate ourselves from those who most need him. It would be counter of the, to the way of Jesus who spent so much of his time with quote-unquote sinful people to the extent that he was called one of them. And so, so let's just start here. We have to intentionally be investing in growing relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And just one thing that I would suggest to you is the concept of biblical hospitality, which is not Martha Stewart type hospitality. Biblical hospitality is all about loving strangers. Biblical hospitality is all about loving strangers. This is what Jesus is throwing out to these guys in this parable. This whole thing about going and bringing the poor and the blind and the lame, like going and bring in vulnerable people. Jesus is saying, I want you to practice hospitality. This is what the Old Testament would call justice and mercy, justice and righteousness. I want you to practice those things. I want you to love people that you don't know. Well, one of the things that has been central for our family and for our church is just making a practice out of sharing meals with other people. Just making a practice of coming around the table together with all kinds of people. People who look like us, people who don't look like us, people who live in our neighborhood, people who don't, people who think what we think, people who don't think what we think, gathering around the table and sharing a meal is an incredible way to build these kinds of relationships. And it stands to reason that if we have been invited to the banquet table of God the Father, that we would in turn sink to invite people to our table. Right? If we've been changed by being invited to the banquet of our Father, that we also would seek to invite people into intimate relationship with us. Secondly, we have to seek out ways to bless the people that we are in relationship with. We have to expand our view of evangelism to be not just telling people the gospel message, but also showing people what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if we look at the example of Jesus, this is something we talk a lot about at Covenant. When we look at the example of Jesus, this is what Jesus was doing so much of the time. Jesus didn't spend his whole ministry sitting on a hillside saying, hey, let me tell you about me. Certainly he did a lot of teaching. But what else did he do? He healed people. He fed people. He brought people back from the dead. He drove out demons. He did all of these incredible, miraculous things, and in all of these things, he is displaying the gospel. 
So he's proclaiming the gospel. He's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But he's also saying, and in my father's kingdom, there is no death. And in my father's kingdom, there is no demon possession or insanity. And in my father's kingdom, there is no hunger. And in my father's kingdom, there is no lameness. There is no illness. No one has leprosy. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so as followers of Christ, we've been sent on a mission, not just simply tell people about Jesus, but to also show people about this new kingdom that we have entered into. To show people what this, this table is like that we have been invited to dine at. This is actually how Christianity spread so rapidly through Europe in the 300s. Um, Rome was in control of much of Europe at that point in time, and the Roman Emperor Julian, who followed the Roman Emperor Constantine, Constantine was the first to show favor towards Christianity in the Roman Empire. The Emperor Julian comes after him, however, and is a vicious opponent of Christianity. He's also a prolific author, and Julian wrote a letter, and in this letter he says that Christianity had especially been advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. So what was happening at the time in Europe was that as Christian churches were being built, they were also building cemeteries. And the Christians were willing to do something that no one else was willing to do. They were willing to take care of the dead bodies of people who weren't Christians. Right? They were willing to take care of the people and the families related to the people who had died, even if those people didn't believe what they believed. Even if those people didn't look like them. Even if those people were Jews who had rejected Christ. The Christians were still willing to care for these families and bury their dead. There were no funeral homes at the time. So people were actually coming to churches and saying, will you help us? And the Christians were the ones who were willing to say, yeah, absolutely. And so over time, because of their generosity, because of their hospitality, the word of the gospel spread like wildfire. What Julian says in this letter, and this is fascinating to me, he says it's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render to them. So as emperor of Rome, he says, our Roman people are getting more help from the Christians than they are from our own government. And so it shouldn't surprise us that people are turning to them in mass number. They are truly serving the population. They aren't just telling people about Jesus. They're showing people what the kingdom of God is like. This is like, like an active example of what Jesus was talking about back in verse 11 when he says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Finally, we have to tell our own stories. Like telling our personal stories of Christ has to be central to this for us. Telling our personal stories of Christ 
is one of the greatest forms of invitation that we have. And I don't care if you're sharing the faith here in Shreveport or if you're sharing the faith in East Africa. Telling your story of what Jesus has done in your life is one of the most compelling ways to share Christ with other people. Yes, we need to know and be able to articulate the gospel message, but doing that within the arc of your own narrative, of your own story, is so important. How has Jesus changed your life? And listen, it doesn't have to be some crazy, like, drama-filled story to be compelling. Most people's isn't. What it is, though, is it's the story of how you are finding rest for your soul. And if there's one thing that the people of our world need and want, whether they realize it or not, it is rest for their soul. So what is your story? Recently, I've been reminded that this is so critical with our children and grandchildren as well. You know, my grandfather was a believer, but I, I can't tell you what his story of faith was. At no point did he ever tell me how he came to know Christ. I just assume he came out of the womb as a Christ follower. And so I've been reminded like how critical it is with my own children that they actually know what Jesus has done for me. How he has changed my life. So evangelism shouldn't just be something we do here and there. This should be something that exudes from our life. If we are abiding, resting in the vine, then this should be something that very naturally comes out of us. Because we are both a child of the king and a servant of the master. Not just someone who has walked through the Roman road or the four spiritual laws with someone else at some point in time, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with that. But our goal is to be disciples who are making disciples, not as an occasional thing, but as an intentional goal of our life, that we are going in the way that Jesus has sent us. And so this morning, um, as we come to the end of our time together, I, I just want us to pray oh, that God would shape the way that we view the world to see our neighborhood, to see the places where we are with his eyes, that we would be filled with compassion for those who are around us, and that if we are people who have truly been changed by him and his gospel, that we would not hesitate to seek to be a part of the lives of people who are around us who desperately need the hope that can only be found in Christ. And so let us close this morning by going to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your great love. And that in spite of our sin, in spite of our guilt, in spite of our failure, you sent your only son to die so that we might find real life. And Father, we recognize today that you desire for us to grow up into Christ, that you are working out this process of sanctification in our lives. Father, may we seek as individuals to emulate Jesus, seek to pattern our lives after Jesus, that we would go with the gospel 
seeking intentionally to make disciples. Father, may we be quick to invite people to our own tables so that through our lives, through our proclamation of the gospel, through our demonstration of the gospel, that they might come to recognize that they have ultimately been invited to your table. And that there is no greater hope. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.